several years ago, we needed to be able to test instrumentation at really cold temperatures. So we, uh, we designed and had uh, installed a, uh, a cold, we call it a cold test chamber. It's okay. basically a big walk-in freezer. Uh, but it, you know, most freezers go down to about zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, this one will go down to below minus 40. Oh my. Uh, so we can, and we can hold that temperature for long periods of time. So we can put equipment in there and test it at cold temperatures and look for, uh, issues that we're going to run into in Alaska. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Further Together, the ORNU podcast. I am your host, Michael Holtz, and I am really excited to talk about um, kind of one of the hidden gems of ORNU. It's work we've been doing for a while, but we don't always talk about it um, out loud at ORNU. So this is an opportunity to do that. We're going to talk about some of our atmospheric sciences work. Um, with NOAA and the ATD program. And to talk about that, I have Kathy Rollo and Mark Hall joining me, and I'm really excited to talk to both of them. I am going to let them introduce themselves. So Kathy, let me turn it over to you and have you introduce yourself, please. I'm Kathy Rollo, and I am the ORU program manager for uh, over ATDD. And then also I support um, the IEB program on the ORI side, independent verification. But I spend the majority of my time um, supporting the atmospheric research mission. Excellent. And Mark Hall, tell us who you are, please. All right. Um, I am the lead engineer uh, for the ORU team at, at ATDD for the Climate Reference Network program. Um, so I've actually worked here for 36 years, but about the last 21 or 22 years, I've been working on the CRM program. Gotcha. And um, for the folks who don't know, the NOAA National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Atmospheric Turbulence and Diffusion Division, talk about what the NOAA ATDD is all about. What do you, what do we do? Why is it important? I guess I can kind of start. I don't, I don't have the area expertise that Mark has, but we're, we have several staff in Oak Ridge and in Idaho Falls that support um, NOAA, which is part of the ATDD, which is part of the Air Resources Laboratory. And um, our primary mission in Oak Ridge that we're supporting NOAA with is uh, climate research, boundary layer characterization, and um, atmospheric chemistry and dispersion. Those are the areas of research that they do. Now, Mark manages that Climate Reference Network, which I'll let him speak to. So that's what's gathering the data that feeds the researchers so that they can, um, they can do. Now, they're, they're reporting what's happened. And Mark can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we do a lot of modeling, like forecasting. We have some towers that feed what people normally think of as NOAA work is the National Weather Service, right? So we have some towers that the National Weather Service 
um, that Mark and the group um, ma maintain that the National Weather Service gathers data from, but they're not doing weather research um, or like predictive modeling. Is okay. that correct? Yeah, that's that's pretty correct. Yeah. So I was just going to say, there's some other interesting things like that that on the other side of the research side that uh, they do like um, we have some people or employees who maintain um, I think it's called UrbanNet if that's the appropriate way to say it. So they're um, it's like urban towers that are inside Washington D.C. So they can use those to uh, forecast hazardous material dispersion and um, also to predict you know whether that what can happen during the climate in urban areas because it's a unique atmosphere. Right, and in urban areas, you have a lot of um, concrete and stone and and very reflective um, hot materials, which I know in a city like Washington, D.C. this time of year is very, very steamy. So, <laughs> and not a lot of green space, at least in the in the city proper itself. So, um, Mark, talk about the, you mentioned the Climate Reference Network um, and talk about some of the work we do with that. And and I know um, just for folks who are listening, we've done some, you know, drones up in hurricanes and and their climate reference network um, spots, towers, kind of all over the place that we're sort of monitoring and keeping abreast of. And so talk a little bit about some of those projects. Okay. So I'll give you just a a little brief history of why the Climate Reference Network came to be and, and all. So when climate became a, uh, a real big topic, the climatologists started looking back at the data they had. And historically, the climate data for the United States came from a network called the Co-op Network. Okay. And the Weather Service oversaw that. And it was a, basically a network of of volunteers and the, the weather service uh, supply the equipment. And when they started looking at that data, there was a lot of issues with the data. Uh, for example, some of the sites started out, they were in the country, but then as the area developed, it became a suburban and then urban areas. And so there was a question about, well, what actually was real climate change and how much it was cha just change of the local environment for the stations. That's just a sh one example. And so they, uh, some of the cl head climatologists, uh, there's a, a data center over in Asheville, North Carolina where all the climate data for the country is, is stored. And at that time, the director there, his name was uh, Tom Carl. And he came up with the idea, well, we ought to design a network that is just designed for climate monitoring and it addresses all the issues that we have with climate data. And so that's, that became the Climate Reference Network. Okay. And um, so it's not in the National Weather Service and there's some reasons for that, I won't get into that, but, um, but the, the Climate Reference Network, our stations are fairly distributed across the United States. We have 114 stations in the continental US there's right now 23 stations in Alaska, and we plan to install another six or so stations in the next uh, three or four years to bring that up to 29 to 30 stations. And then there's two in Hawaii. Okay. And so those stations <clears throat> are the primary measurements there are temperature, 
and precipitation and now some soil measurements that we make. And uh, the stations were, the locations were picked so that they're in areas that aren't going to be developed. Um, most of those are in national parks, wildlife refuges, other federal lands, nature conservancy lands, university properties, things like that where uh, there should not be influenced by human uh, development. And then there's a lot of uh, redundancy in our measurements. For example, the temperature measurements, we have three uh, sensors there. And if the idea is if those three sensors agree with each other, then you've got a lot of confidence in that data. Okay. If one of those sensors fails, it's obvious in the data and it can be flagged and taken out. And another thing we do is we visit these stations uh, once a year. And during those visits, we do some calibrations. Uh, one of the things we do is, for example, is replace one of the three uh, temperature sensors with a newly calibrated sensor. So all those sensors are recalibrated on a three-year rotation. Um, and and it, so um, the, the, the calibration record is kept and it's, it's part of the record. And then we also do a photo documentation and some actual other documentation to, to verify that the site has characteristics haven't changed. And if there's anything going on, it's obvious in the photos and we document that and turn that in. So the data comes from our stations. It's transmitted by GOES satellite every hour. A lot of the data is taken every five minutes. We have five minute averages for temperature and precipitation, some other things. And that data lands over at the data center in Asheville, North Carolina. And it's uh, it goes online and then they process it over there. There's some like uh, daily summaries, monthly summaries that are produced. And then the data also goes out to the weather service and they ingest that and use it in some of the forecasting and, and other things like that. Mark, what does the the data from the Climate Reference Network, I guess from a big picture perspective, what does it tell us about um, what's happening across the country? The purpose of the network is to provide a, a, a set of data that we have a lot of confidence in. And so it's, it's called a reference networks in that other measurements or networks or stations can be referenced to this network to see okay. if they uh, if they agree with what's going on here or if those stations, if you're seeing some change there that may be on a local basis. Okay. And so the climatologists uh, use this to, uh, to look at their climate models uh, and then also to verify other data and, and to ingest it. So one of the things about, you know, the climate, there's a lot of discussion about climate, but sure. everybody would agree that you want good data. And Absolutely. So no, no matter where people are on the spectrum, uh, they want good data, good quality data, so that you can see what's actually happening over time. And like I said, the 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 this network was designed to handle a lot of the issues that you see in data from other places. And uh, because of that, over time, it's like the co-op network still exists. And so as time goes on they'll be able to compare the record of the co-op network to what the climate reference network has done 
and then see, okay, are there these issues that you would suspect might be there? How big of an influence are there? And, and then by that, they can actually go back in time, hopefully, and correct some data that exists before the, the network was here. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. Um, and I know, um, Kathy or Mark, we have, you know, researchers, I'm thinking of like Dr. Um, Krishnan, who, you know, they're looking at even some of the upper air, you know, weather and, and um, how it's impacting, how fluxes in the atmosphere, you know, are impacting climates in places like the Arctic and um, other places like that. Um, how do how does what happens at ATD, how does, I, I'm not sure what my question is, I guess, how does that work? I mean, is how, how do we get that kind of data? Um, in addition to, you know, what we're doing with the Climate, climate Reference Network. I'd like to just point out, and I think that Mark kind of almost made this clear, our, our, our scientists and engineers are very conscientious not to be involved in the political side of what Absol can be done, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it, that is not, um, that has nothing to do with our mission, and, and um, even when we have some research that's released and it gets used for whatever, you know, if it becomes publicized, I think that they almost consider that kind of a failure. They just want to present the facts, you know, and let somebody else interpret it. Um, so I guess that's, that's for, that explains a lot about, I guess, his response. And I think he did a great job in your response, Mark. Um, a little bit to answer about what you're talking about, and I should have mentioned this earlier, is our small unmanned aircraft system. So that's, yeah. that's that's a lot of what you're talking about. How do you how do you get the gap of what you're going to gather between the um, what the satellites can pick up and the Earth's surface? So um, so that's and we support that mission a lot. Um, we we have um, you know engineers who are working on the sensors that are placed on it. We have pilots that are flying the craft, and um, so so there's a lot of a lot of support from ORU that's there, and that's important because, and not that we do this a tremendous amount, but it does allow you to gather data in, you know, in atmosphere that men can't, man can't be in, you know, in dangerous or remote areas. Um, obviously, in the past, not recently, you know, we've 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 had some data where they tried to flew into, um, you know, extreme weather conditions, and obviously, we're going to soon start gathering some data. We got some. Um, New work that NOAA's passed us down through the new um, through the, the infrastructure um, funding that's coming down. Uh, we're going to have disaster supplement and wildfire um, funding that's coming for us to gather some information to better predict the the uh, impacts of wildfires and also so that NOAA and the National Center for Atmospheric Research can ways to better share data across the two the two groups. So. Okay. Um, I hope that answers your question. That's a little bit about how we, another way that we're collecting data at a different, um, I guess, elevation. Right. Well, I and I mean, the, the whole process is is data collection, right? I mean, we've got the Climate Reference Network, we've got satellite data, we've got drones that we send, you know, I, I know in the relatively recent past, you know, up into hurricanes we've sent you know, or drop drones from airplanes to 
collect data. And really and truly, Mark, as you said before, our purpose in all of this is to collect and present this. This is the data we have. This is what's happening at these locations across the country, um, around the world, depending on, you know, the data we're looking at. And, you know, we've got the Climate Reference Network and, and Mark, as you said, the, the co-op information and is it all jiving, basically. And so it's like, we're sort of proving, you know, or disproving as the case may be, the data is the data and that it makes sense and that um, the co-op data eventually lines up with the climate reference data. And um, as you said, it's, it's not for political purposes. It's for the presentation of data to say, here's where we are. This is what's one, going on. One thing I'll uh, say too is um, we do uh, at times, you know, there's a lot of s satellite data that gets taken. I mean, they do ground surface temperature data and they've started doing soil moisture data. And so our stations that sometimes are used as a ground truth or a, or a, a check on satellite data, they look at their stations to see as a satellite scans over that area, how well does that agree with the, the satellite readings? And and so anyway, that's used in that um, that way also. Awesome. Um, from a just a career perspective, you know, as someone who might be, you know, interested as a perspective, um, NOAA ATV um, worker, what kinds of work, and Mark, I think you're an engineer, um, they're meteorologists, I know, are, you know, what kinds of people do this kind of work? So for, for my group, we have uh, several engineers and then engineering techs. Okay. Um, and so uh, for we have quite a few people that travel on the road. Uh, I think right now we have two people that are traveling to Colorado and Wyoming. And so each of our stations we visit once a year. Okay. And uh, so we're so the people that work for, for me have technical skills. Um, but they also get to travel quite a bit. And so that's, that's a, a plus and a minus. <laughs> so, um, I think there's quite a few of us that have been to all 50 states. Um, I've been to all 50 states multiple times. And, um, and some of the places we go are, are pretty nice. I mean, I mean, we've got uh, sites in uh, a lot of national parks. We've got uh, you know, Yosemite, um, glacier, <laughs> yeah, glacier national park, glacier bay, Hawaii. So, so it's it's uh so it's quite a bit of travel and um. But and, and I volunteer as tribute. Yeah. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> well, there's we we get that all the time. And <laughs> I bet it's funny. Our techs sometimes they uh, they laugh about that. They say, well. After a while, it just turns into work, no matter where you are. And sure, there's, a, there's some truth to that. So we we've, we've got some uh, pretty crazy travel stories in house. That's uh, pretty entertaining. You get get our guys together, and uh, they can tell <laughs> a lot of stories. Uh, but we also have, uh, you know, in the lab, we have people that are uh, data people. Um, you know, one one of the people, the scientists. We got a Tim Wilson is a soil scientist here mm -hmm. at the lab. And he uh, has been working with the CRM program quite a bit to help us figure out 
you know, what sensors are the best, how do you interpret the data that we have in different soils. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting in the soil community, a lot of, there's a lot of soil sensors out there, but a lot of those are in agricultural areas primarily. Well, our sites are in all types of environment. And so when you get these, these uh, sensors in, in uh, these different environments, you know exactly what does that data mean and how do you interpret it? And, and so, um, so, you know, we've got the scientists here. Uh, there's also people that are data uh, analysts and, and all. So anyway, there's, it's quite a, uh, quite a, a, a a range of, um, of our uh, skills. That gotcha. Gotcha. Um, the folks that are, you mentioned for the climate reference network, you know, calibrating, um, the sensors and those sorts of things. Is that what your folks are doing when they're on the road is kind of checking the stations and making sure the calibrations are correct? And yes. And and, and so we do calibrations here in house. We've got okay. uh, a calibration bath for the temperature sensors. We've got a wind tunnel here we use for doing the, the winds uh, sensors calibrations. Uh, we've got a, a relative humidity chamber that we can use. Um, and then in the field, we calibrate the precip gauges to make sure they're accurate once they're inside, on site. Um, so, yeah, so we do a lot of calibrations. We got uh, a lot of ex expertise on that. Um, and then we also do some research too. Um, uh, you know, we've got uh, sites in Alaska that are exposed to some pretty severe environments. And so one of the things we did uh, several years ago, we needed to be able to test instrumentation at really cold temperatures. So we uh, we designed and had uh, installed a, a cold, we call it a cold test chamber. It's okay. basically a big walk-in freezer. Uh, but it, you know, most freezers go down to about zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, this one will go down to below minus 40. Oh my. Uh, so we can, and we can hold that temperature for long periods of time so we can put equipment in there and test it at cold temperatures and look for uh, issues that we're going to run into in Alaska. Okay. So you would do that before you exposed it to yes. the actual harsh temperatures in, yes. in Alaska? Now, Michael, not just bat it's not just like sensors, like, like it's also like the batteries, you know, they, they yeah. tried to Solar, they've tried wind, they've tried, I mean, they're constantly trying to um, figure out a better way to maintain the, the systems to where they can take the harsh, extreme environment and send the data back consistently. That's amazing. I mean, that's, to me, that sounds like a lot of work in and of itself just to keep the, the network going, especially in those places like Alaska and, you know, the, the harsher northern um, climates, but even, you know, in places that are, uh, you know, severe, severe weather prone, like the, you know, kind of hurricane and tornado belts, like <laughs> making sure the equipment can withstand some of that. Yeah. In the fencing, Mark, Mark had, had worked with some other people and they came up with a, an inventive way to put fencing around. You know, you if you're gonna get the accurate uh, readings, you can't have it blown out or, or you know, you're, you have to be able to 
have maintained the area to where it will take accurate collections. They just it's so complicated and they're so inventive and it's just a, a constant push to try to figure out a better way to do it. They they do an amazing job. That's awesome. And to keep how many stations, Mark, did you say 130? Yeah, yeah it's, I lose count sometimes. It's around 140 nations. 140, okay. And uh, to, to what uh, Kathy was talking about, uh, we we have a scientist here, a NOAA scientist who worked with, he, did, he participated in a World Meteorological Organization uh, study a few years ago. And we had, uh, there were several test sites around the world and we had one that was outside of Boulder, Colorado, that okay. we instrumented the, our, our team put a, quite a bit of instrumentation in there and worked some people over at NCAR. And, um, and his name is John Kokendorfer. And John and, and I and another scientist at NOAA came up with a design for a, a wind fence. All our, all our precept gauges have wind fences around it because as Kathy was saying, the wind can dramatically uh, affect uh, the catch of snow and sure. both gauges under report. Okay. And so, so that study was to look at that. And, uh, and from that study, we came up with a new design that I think we're about ready to start uh, implementing, installing those at our stations. That's amazing. And you have to do it, I imagine. You have to, you know, create these wind fences and, and whatever, you know, battery packs, whatever to not only withstand the weather, but also to not impact the data. Yes. Right? <laughs> so that in and of itself has to be a tremendous challenge. Yes. And um, we have a, quite a few stations that run on AC power, but then the, we also have quite a few that are either solar powered, and then we also use some wind power. And then in okay. some of the extreme places in Alaska, we use a, a methanol fuel cell. Okay. And, and the and that's one of the big reasons for this cold test chamber because the methanol fuel cell um, it uses methanol as a fuel it goes and uh, and it produces some heat, but it you have to you have to keep it up to a certain temperature for it to perform. And so uh, one of the scientists or one of the engineers here, Michael Black, he worked on the design to uh, uh, we basically buy a big uh, insulated container, put the fuel cell in that, put our batteries in it, put the methanol fuel in there, and then it it regulates its internal temperature, and uh, and and we've been fairly successful at getting those systems to run in Alaska, where it gets down to minus 50, minus it could yeah. get down minus 60 degrees, and that system runs all through the winter. Uh, so that's a big accomplishment. I have to tell you, I could talk about this all but like the, that work alone truly fascinates me. Just how you keep all of those stations going in the various climates and the various needs of the area where those stations are located. It just blows my mind. And, and Kathy, I, you know, <laughs> as you said, how creative and, and inventive Um the team is and making all of that work. Stories are endless. Believe me, it's amazing. They do they do an outstanding job. Outstanding I love job. it. Is there anything um, I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure that we cover? Um, 
or that you want to say about um, the work or the team? I would, if you don't mind, some shameless plugs, just some things that we didn't quite mention that I think are just fascinating. We, I know we've done this work for over 40 years, and I bet we're getting close to 50. We probably need to do some research, but we, I mean, supported NOAA in Oak Ridge for so, so long, and we have an outstanding relationship with the customer, and um, it's just an amazing group. It really is. And not only in Oak Ridge, we, we also have people supporting um, under the Air Resources Laboratory in Idaho Falls. And then someplace, uh, something else that uh, we, we also do that is in complement the NOAA work, but we also have a grant through the National Science Foundation where we're doing Arctic research. So some, some people that support NOAA are also supporting uh, NSF directly. We're teamed with Harvard on that. And um, they're looking at you know carbon emissions in the Arctic, trying to uh, bridge the gap between you know local data and um, some large-scale data that's already out there. So, and they are actually traveling fairly soon. They're going to do some put in. They're going to utilize the NOAA tower and then um, also do some flights to collect some data up there. So, so we 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 are growing so much um, in this area. It's it's slow growth, but we really, really are growing. We've, we're probably going to be up um, at least a third on our revenue over the next two years. So it, it's coming along. Wow. Surely. And, you know, the, it just seems like there's more and more data that needs to be captured. So the need is there. So, <laughs> um, and you have, you know, as, as you both talked about, you know, inventive, creative, um, brilliant team members that are doing some amazing work. So um, I look forward to learning much more. Um, and I would love to come back and talk about the um, the NSF Arctic Air research once they have uh, kind of some more of that data in-house. I know I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Krishnan a little bit about um, some of that work, but um, when they have more results after they've done some of the flights and that sort of thing. I would love to talk more about that. Well, Kathy Rollo and Mark Hall, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's absolutely fascinating. I like I want I want to hear the stories of the travels and the the you know the the inventions for the climate reference network stations that um, are being deployed. I know we've touched on some of them and and I just think it's amazing that you can you can create um, systems to keep the stations operational and collect the data and not interfere with that data collection and um, everything you know it just it amazes me so um, personal hats off to the whole team from from me just for for the opportunity to talk about it thank you thank you both so much have a great rest of your day Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.